Let's just uh, pray. Lord, our Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You that we can sing these wonderful truths about Your coming again. But not just that, Lord. Thank You that You are right here with us through this life and that we can live our lives with the hope of Jesus Christ in us. And Lord, thank You that we can now open Your Word too, that, that we can find the truths that You have there for us, that we can be strengthened in our lives so that when we go out from this place, we can live lives which glorify Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray now that you would make our hearts soft before you. Open our ears, Lord. May we hear the word that your Spirit speaks to us, every single one. We know that you can do that miracle where you can speak to each of us in your own way. From the same passage, speak to us, we pray, so that we will be changed to be like Jesus Christ and to prepare for the coming of the great King. Use this time, we pray. Amen. As you turn to uh, Revelation chapter 18, just a little bit of background on here or how I'm going to approach things this morning. A little different. Um, I'm not doing an in-depth textual analysis, um, so sorry about that. Um, but what we are going to look at is the theme that comes out of here, and that's the call of God on every one of our lives. Come out from her, my people. And I really want to zero in on that because I believe it is so urgent that we hear this message. And so the Lord has really put it on my heart, and as He always does, in the preparation, as we work up to these things, and those of you who preach will know, He really works in your life that week on that specific theme, and so I've really been convicted. And so I, if I come over a bit passionate, that's why it is. And the Lord has really been knowing, working in my life in this area. Um, we are going to look at the text, so all is not lost, um, but we know a lot of this, this stuff already. We've seen these themes and some of the elements that come out here already. And it, it leans very heavily on the historic fall of Babylon and that picture. So see the picture today, but hear the call as the Lord speaks to each of us. Let's read through Revelation chapter 18. After this I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, 
so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore, cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots and slaves, that is, human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls, for in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. And all the shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning, What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads, and they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew, grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon the great city be, thrown down with violence, and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters, will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints, and of all who have been slain on earth. Very early in the morning of April the 15th, 1912, off the coast of Newfoundland, that unsinkable ship, the Titanic, sank. 
she hit, the star, uh, she hit a, an iceberg and she sank. And of the 2,240 souls on board, 1,517 perished. She had been advertised as unsinkable. And all the luxury and pomp of society of that day was found on that ship. They were so confident of the abilities and the properties of that ship. But now, it's lying at the bottom of the ocean. After all, that glory. Keep that picture in mind as you see this bigger picture of Babylon. This worldly system with all its pomp and ceremony and attractions. It too is going to sink. It is going to experience the judgment of God. And the great picture the Lord has put in my mind this week is of a person being dragged down by a thick rope that you can't break. Dragged down as that ship goes down, there goes that person sucked down with the ship. Are we going to be sucked down with it? As we look at this passage this morning, we have in front of us the destruction of Babylon. Not the destruction of the actual city, because that happened way back in history. And we'll get to that. But the destruction of the world, the worldly Babylon, the worldly system is announced here. And we've been kind of building up to this in various parts of Scripture. And we, we've come to, just before the destruction of Babylon, every time in the cycle of descriptions that we've looked at in the book of Revelation, that here the actual destruction of the city is gone into in great detail. And it's horrific. And also we see here the, the, not just the reasons for her destruction, but also the reactions of those who had so much dealing with Babylon. And as this picture is described, the call goes out to you and I. How much are we involved? How much are we tied to this city, this great Babylon? Because if we're too closely tied, we will experience the judgment she experienced. So let's look at this passage. The destruction of this Babylon is announced by a mighty angel, a mighty angel reflecting the glory of heaven because the whole earth is lit up by this angel. And this angel announces this destruction of Babylon. This moment when the just God's judgment comes upon her. And in this picture, she is utterly destroyed by burning. And it all happens in an instant. All her riches, all her wealth, all her temporary pleasures, all her outward beauty and splendor is gone. And you find this phrase repeated over and over, never to be found again, found no more. And the description leans, leans very heavily on the historical detail of her actual destruction. In 539 BC, Cyrus the Great destroyed Babylon. And over and over in Scripture we get descriptions. We find that in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, and in very, other, very many other places, the destruction of the actual city is used and described to us. 
And there's a warning to us every time. Don't be caught in her when she's destroyed. See the picture this morning. And then as we get to the angel later on in the passage, throwing that great millstone into the sea, there's a reference there too. Nothing here happens by accident. There's a reference there specifically to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 51, verses 63 to 64. That illustration that the prophet gave about the actual destruction of the city, Babylon. Let's go and just look there very quickly. I'm just going to read you a couple of verses from Jeremiah chapter 51. And this is the illustration God gave, the actual illustration, where the prophet took a millstone and threw it into the water. And this is what God was saying through this. This is his instruction to the prophet Jeremiah. When you finish reading this book of prophecy, tie a stone to it and cast it into the midst of the Euphrates. Now, we've been studying the Euphrates for a while now. What was the Euphrates all about? The Euphrates was the dividing line between the evil that constantly came against God's people and the nations from outside, who sometimes brought judgment under the Lord's hand against God's people. And so, see the symbolism here. Lord says to Jeremiah, when you finish reading this book, Tie a stone to it and cast it into the midst of Euphrates and say, Thus shall Babylon sink to rise no more because of the disaster that I am bringing upon her. And, and then he says, And they shall become exhausted. We don't have to go into that now. So there is the picture. Tie this great stone around the book, the prophecy that I'm giving to you, and throw it into the midst of Euph- Euphrates. And the picture there is people of Israel, take note. The judgment of the Lord is coming against that city. And it's also a reflection of Nehemiah's prayer. Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 11. Just listen to this phrase. Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 11. Also Old Testament now. This is what the Lord said through Nehemiah. Nehemiah's prayer. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. You see what happened there? What is Nehemiah describing? He's describing what happened in Exodus when God saved his people from the Egyptians. When the Egyptians drowned in the Red Sea. He says, you cast them into the midst of the sea like a stone that sank. You destroyed them. You judged them. And so there's all kinds of references here. Jeremiah, Nehemiah, we've got Isaiah, Ezekiel, too many to do this morning. But Old Testament prophecy that is being brought out here. Note too that Babylon is thrown down with violence. In the last part of this passage in Revelation we see that the angel takes this great millstone and casts it into the depths of the sea, the depths of the unknown, where the demons would live, where she would go to her judgment. But there's violence here. It's not going to be pretty. God's judgment also is a 
an answer to the prayers of the saints for justice to be done so that God's name would be upheld. So that His holiness would be upheld before the nations. And where were those prayers brought? We saw that early in the book of Revelation, chapter 6, verse 9 to 11. There at the great golden altar of incense, the prayers of the, of the people for justice, for the Lord's name, rose before the Lord. And here we find now, God answers that prayer by destroying Babylon. What were the reasons for her destruction? Firstly, we see, and I'm, I'm going right over this whole passage, so I'll try and give you a few of the verse references, but I'm kind of summarising what is said in this whole passage. What were some of the reasons mentioned here for her destruction? In verses 1 to 3 and verse 7, we see that she was filled with everything unclean before the Lord. All the unclean animals, the unclean deeds, the word unclean is used, ceremonially unclean before the Lord. Everything unholy was in that city. Everything the Lord detested because of sin, all the dealings and the actions which were a rebellion against God, the idol worship, the sexual immorality, the selling of human souls. And you know how many years before slavery took place in the West? God already says that slavery is a selling of souls. It's not a new thing. And yet that's part of the world system, isn't it? And they were already doing it in the prophet's day. They were already doing it in Jesus' day. These are the sins which God abhors. And note here, they're not the riches that are the evil. It's what people do with these riches. It's always actions that are the evil thing, not the actual things. Note that. Because the church in the past has said that we must deny all riches. We must deny all these good things that God has given to us. That's not what God says. It's the actions that take place with all the riches, with all the good food, with all the jewels. That is what this system is filled with. And those, that is one of the reasons for her destruction. The haughty pride of the city itself. Verse 7. I won't be a widow. I will sit on my throne like a queen. She's denying humility. She is raising up pride. The tormenting of God's people. Verse 24. Many prophets and saints had died at her hand. She had led many astray by her sorcery and her immorality. These are all warnings that had come by many of the prophets. Isaiah chapter 47 verse 9 to 15 also warns about these things. The sorcery and the immorality that was taking place in the city of Babylon. So those are some of the reasons for her destruction. Let's look at some of the reactions of the people that were had to do with Babylon. Those who were involved with the fornication with her or who committed sexual adultery with her. Now in the Bible when it speaks about sexual adultery, it does speak about the actual act, but it's speaking about idolatry. Those who have given their hearts to something. And here it says that the kings of the earth and the merchants and the sailors had committed adultery with her in various ways and they are the ones who now weep because they see her being destroyed. They had participated in her wickedness 
and her attitude of rebellion against God by bowing down to the God of wealth. They'd abused others through a misuse of power and authority. The kings of the earth had misused their power and authority with her. The merchants of the earth and the shipmasters, the shipmasters who saw that all the systems worked well, that things got transported so that they thereby associated themselves with her wickedness. Police do that too today. They don't just arrest the person who's committed the crime, but also those associated with, those who help it to happen, right? Same thing here. And that's why the shipmasters and the sailors are implicated. And what are they doing here? They're weeping and wailing and mourning. Why? Because they see the destruction of the city? No. Why are they weeping and wailing and mourning? Because they see the one whose source is their pleasure now destroyed. They see the one whose source is their wealth now destroyed. So what's it all about? Me, myself and I. I'm affected. And this one who made it possible for me, this worldly system, this city of Babylon, has now been destroyed. And so I weep and wail for myself. No longer will I be able to participate in her pleasures. No longer will I be able to have wealth coming from her because I'm selling things to people. No wonder... will. No, no more will I have wealth because I'm transporting her goods all over the world. It's all been taken away from me. I'm affected. And so they mourn for her. They throw dust on their heads, verse 19. The source of their wealth has been destroyed. But also says, verse 10 and verse 15, that they look on her with fear. They see her destruction with fear. Why with fear? Because they notice the speed at which this judgment comes upon the city. She was there and then she was destroyed. It all happened, it says, in an hour, in a day. And if we know Revelation now, that means real quickly. In an hour she was destroyed. And they look at this destruction with incredulous amazement. How can it be? She was here and now we just see burning embers. And they mourn. What do they realize? That they too will be affected in the same way. They've been associated with her wickedness and God has said over and over and over those who are associated with her will be affected in the same way by the very same judgment. Do you see the picture being created? Herodotus, who was an early historian, described how when the actual city of Babylon fell, there was an actual physical outcry by the kings, by the important people, by the merchants, by the sailors of these cities that were associated with them. They stood outside the actual destruction of that city and the historical records record, they wept, they mourned, they cried aloud because they saw their income gone. And so this picture picks up on that and it puts the spiritual lesson into it. You see, what is that? It's all about me in the end. Then we get to this most important passage, verses 4 to 8, and that's where I'll be zeroing in this morning. This call that comes from heaven, 
Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share, lest you share in her plagues. Who calls here? Is it the angel? We have this voice from heaven. And whenever scripture uses that voice from heaven, who is it speaking? It's God speaking directly. And he's saying to his people, those who belong to him, my people, separate yourselves from the sinfulness of Babylon. It's calling for action. It won't happen by itself. Separate yourselves from the sinfulness of Babylon, lest by participation in her sins, you bring on yourselves to the punishment of a holy God against sin of any kind. You see, God is going to judge the world and everything to do with the world. The sin that's in this world, He's going to judge. He's not going to excuse the sin of sinners. He's not going to excuse the sin of believers either. And yes, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, all our sins are cast on Him. Yes, we believe that. But there's an actual bringing those things and casting them at the feet of Jesus Christ that is called for here. Because God cannot excuse sin of any kind, whether from unbeliever or believer. It must be dealt with. Why? Because He's holy God. How can He excuse sin? And yes, there is good news for those of us in Jesus Christ, but it means we must come to Jesus Christ. We must separate ourselves from the world. We must bring those attitudes, those actions, and we must bring them to Jesus Christ and ask Him to take them from us, to forgive us our sins that we commit every day. Don't think that if you're a believer, you can dilly-dally with sin and just leave it. You've got to deal with it. God's got to deal with it in your life. You've got to come to Him. Now, this passage has been misused in two ways, and I want to point it out to you this morning. You see, some have used this phrase, come out of the world, and they understand that it's separating themselves into monasteries, into holy, communi- holy communities, and living lives which have, as they think, minimal contact with the world, because in that way they believe they'll avoid sin. Now, that's a fallacy. Why? Why is it a fallacy? Because I carry sin with me. So even though I go into a monastery, sin has come with me. There's an enemy in the camp. And so it's a fallacy. You see, unless the Lord has taken away that sin from me, it doesn't matter where I go and how much I separate myself from the rest of sin, sin is with me. And I need to have it dealt with. Luther discovered this. He thought by separating himself and doing the work God had appointed him to, that he could escape from sin. But he had that constant struggle with Satan, right there in his exclusion. And also it goes against God's words. Because by separating ourselves from the world in this way and by having nothing to do with the world, how can we believers be salt and light? How can we influence others for the gospel? See, it doesn't work. How can we have an influence in the world if we're never in contact with the world? And so that can't be what this is saying. Another misuse of this passage is this. Others have taken the opposite view. They've said, God says we must come out of the world. Alright, well, I'm a Christian. 
I say I'm a Christian, I act like a Christian, I wear clothes like a Christian, I try and say things that other Christians would say, I go to church, I have a massive big Bible. And so I can actually participate with it all because I want to be salt and light, right? But the problem is, the participation becomes so great that there's no difference anymore between that person and the world. And even though they plead and they use this feeble phrase of I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian in the middle of all this sin, their deeds betray that their hearts are not separated from the world. You see, it's back to the heart again. There has to be a separation of heart from the world. When the Lord says here, come out from them, my, come out from her, my people, He's saying, bring your hearts out from her, my people. Because your hearts have been captured by Babylon. Your hearts have become so much like the world in your attitudes and your actions and your thinking that there's no difference between you and the way the world thinks. That's why in many Christian churches now, the attitude of the church towards moral issues is the same as the world's. There's no difference. Their hearts have been captured by Babylon. So how do we come out from Babylon? How do we do that practically? How do we follow what Jesus said? He said, be in the world but not of the world talking about a heart thing here. Be in the world, but not of the world. How do we manage to be salt and light in the world without being assimilated by the world? William Barclay made a beautiful statement. He said this. He said, the world is not simply a passive entity, but a rival for the allegiance of every person. I'm going to repeat that. He said, the world is not simply a passive entity. The world is not just there. But it is a rival for the allegiance of every person. The world is a rival for your heart and my heart with Jesus Christ. Coming out of the world is not about rules. It's not about do nots. It's not about don't drink, don't smoke. Don't gamble. Don't go to the movies. By the way, that doesn't give Christians the right to do anything you like either. You see, coming out of the world is all about the heart and its allegiance. Is your heart pointed to God or to the world? Is your heart pointed to Jesus Christ and love for Him first? Or is your heart drawn towards the world. In other words, the question you need to ask yourself is, what can I participate in that would still bring honour to the name of Jesus Christ? You see, I can be a churchgoer and yet still have my heart owned by the world. It's not about rules. It's not about outward actions. It is about allegiance. Who owns your heart and mine? Jesus Christ or the world? Who does your heart love and obey? Jesus Christ or the world? Romans chapter 8 verses 4 to 8 says this. It says, Do you walk according to the flesh 
that is the world's standards and calling, or do you walk according to the Spirit, that is God's calling and influence in your life? And it carries on, for those who live according to the flesh, listen to this, those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. I'm trying to be as practical as possible here, and I'll get to the so what now. But Romans says to us that those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Now, to set the mind on flesh is death, says Romans. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on flesh is hostile to God and cannot please God. So, the question we need to ask ourselves is, how much, how much percentage of my time is spent about thinking about the flesh and everything about the flesh? And how much percentage of my thinking time is spent on thinking about God and His ways? It starts in here. It starts in the mind. And then it moves. Where? Heart. Action. What's in my heart is going to affect how I think. How I think is going to affect my actions. So, what Romans is saying to us, what are you setting your mind on? It's going to start there. And this is where I have to confess before you as a church. My mind is set too much on this world sometimes. I love gadgets. I love things that work like that. How much of my time is, is spent thinking about these things? And how much of my time is actually spent on thinking about the wonders that we've been singing about this morning? The wonders of what God has done for me and my soul. The wonders of what He can still do for people around me. You see, I'm so absorbed by everything that I see around me that I forget about where people are going. And therefore, my feet slow down, my mouth shuts, and I'm not telling others. And I'm not going out and telling the gospel. Because it's not in my heart. It's not in my mind. You see, the kings and merchants had their minds set on the things of the world. And that's why they will experience that destruction. And when she's destroyed, their very hearts are ripped from them. That's where they were at. Their hearts were captivated by what she had to offer. They were living according to the flesh if they had known about Romans. Their hearts were hostile to God and that's why they share the same fate as the world. And what's that? The judgment of God. So, the Apostle John speaks to us in 1 John chapter 2 and I'd like you to turn there with me because he has summarised the same thing just in another book. 1 John chapter 2 verse 15 to 17. This is what the Apostle John says to us. The same one who gave us this vision from the Lord. Verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's real clear. For all that is in the world, what is that? The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. Do you see how insidious this hold of the world is on us? 
If you look at that description, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions, who can raise their hand and say, I'm not guilty of any of those? I can't. And it says here, it's not from the Father, but from the world. So the world's got a hold on me. That thick rope is round my legs. And here is what he says, and the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Can't be clearer. So how then do we live a life set on God? I'm going to be as practical as I can. I've taken a few things from Scripture. Firstly, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. You see, if we are loving God with all our hearts, our hearts will be pointed to Him. And what our hearts are full of, our minds will be thinking of, it will lead to what we do. So set your heart and love the Lord your God with all your heart. Who is your first love? This is a reminder to you and I this morning. Secondly, put to death the deeds of the body. Romans 8 verse 13. Those habits, those lifestyles, whether they're open or secret. Those things that bring dishonor to Christ's name. Pornography. In secret or in the open. Whether you watch what, what you watch openly on TV in front of your kids sometimes. Or what you watch in secret when you think no one's watching. That obsession with online games which sucks up all your time and your family's time. Which destroys your family life. That constant desire for more things and more experiences. My friend, I plead with you today, be accountable to someone in regards to this. Ask your wife to keep a closer watch on you. Ask your husband to help you through. Even if it is too much shopping. And I'm not, caric- not characterizing here now, okay? We all shop too much. Ask someone else to help you. Stand alongside me. I'm weak in this area. Ask me how I'm doing. Check my phone. Check my computer anytime you like. Help me. That overindulgence in all kinds of things, whether it's food, whether it's too much TV, whether it's too much time spent on whatever, be accountable. Put to death the deeds of the body. That's calling for action. It doesn't say mess around with it. It says put to death the deeds of the body. Thirdly, take captive every thought for Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. I love this verse. I just forget about this verse too quickly. I put it up on in front of my desk so I can see it every single day when I sit there preparing sermons. I put it up in my home where I can see it, in my place. Take captive every thought for Christ. What does that talk about? It talks about war. Take captive, there's action. Grab it. Take captive every thought for Christ. Why? Because thoughts lead to action. And if I can take captive every thought and give it to Jesus Christ, my feet will not go there. 
Take captive every thought for Christ. We're going to sing this hymn soon. Lord, be my vision, supreme in my heart. Bid every rival give way and depart. Take captive every thought for Christ. And the question you need to be asking yourself is, how can I do what I do for Christ? That's how you take captive every thought. How can I do what I do for Him? How can I react to social attitudes in my community and the social norms? How can I react to these for Christ? I need to think about it. We have to be thinking Christians before we become doing Christians. Because that's how we get out from Babylon. And if you take captive every thought for Christ, then your actions will be Christ's actions too. Directly connected. Fourthly, depend on the Holy Spirit because without Him, you will fall over every single time. Without the Holy Spirit giving us the strength to do this, we will not be able to overcome sin and we will continue to live lives which dishonor God as part of Babylon. Depend on the Spirit to give you the strength to overcome. I'm going to give you a text from the Old Testament which speaks about this. Radical. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 27, 25 to 27. Have a look at this very interesting text here. This is God and His prophecy to Israel. And He's saying to them, if you give me back your hearts, then I will do something in you. Verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my Rules. Do you see where it starts? He gives us a heart filled with His Spirit. He takes over our minds. The Spirit does this. And then I can walk a walk which honors God. That's how we get out of Babylon. And then lastly this morning, don't just depend on the Holy Spirit, but something practical in front of your eyes. Imitate Jesus Christ. Come on, Calvin, how do I do that? He's not here. Imitate Jesus Christ. How? Look how Jesus Christ reacted to others. And then imitate Him. Love your neighbor as He loved them. Luke chapter 10, verse 27. Become Christ's hands and feet in practice. And so you need to ask yourself, how would Christ love my irritating and my complaining neighbor? Now, go and love them likewise. I know about that. I've got a dog that's been barking across the fence. Now, I've been struggling with a council for three months. Every night. And I must admit to you, as the pastor of this church, sometimes I haven't reacted in the way I should. How would Christ love my irritating and complaining neighbour? I forgive the dog. Because the dog can't help itself. Seriously. 
Now I need to love my neighbour in the same way. And we've all got neighbours who irritate us. Maybe you don't. I'll come and live with you. Secondly, how would Christ deal with people of different moral persuasions than me? And as people come to this country, this country is not a godly country anymore. I don't think it was. But how do we deal with people with different moral persuasions? How did Christ deal with them? He confronted them, but He loved them. He didn't compromise on the truth. He confronted them with the truth in love. Now, go do likewise. And whether we do that on social media, whether we do that in the papers, we are to always have the love of Christ, even though we are firm on our convictions. But we have to put it out there. How would Christ serve my customers? Well, you serve your customers with honesty, with integrity, with your best efforts. Not the way Babylon serves customers with minimum effort, maximum profit. You see, that's how we come out of Babylon. Have the same attitude as the attitude of Jesus Christ. What was his attitude? He gave himself for the world. We are to do the same. Come out of her, my people, in all you think and do. Don't be like her. Don't imitate her. Don't love what she loves and offers. Don't let her captivate your heart. Don't share in her plagues and her judgment. Offer your whole heart and life as a living sacrifice. That's the day by day, action by action, thought by thought, offering of my life to the Lord. Let Him be first in my life. No other rivals on my heart. And as we do that, God will use you and I, according to 2 Corinthians 2.15, we will then become the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved. Because He's still doing His work and He's using us. And we will become the aroma of Christ to those who are perishing with Babylon. Maybe they will smell Christ in us and in our lives and be drawn to Him. And then lastly, to you who are unsaved, what does this passage describe? It says, unless you come out of Babylon, in, unless you come out of the worldly system, unless Jesus Christ takes your heart and gives you His love and puts His Spirit in you and gives you a new heart, you will experience the judgment that Babylon will experience when Jesus returns. His warning comes out to you. And I plead with you, hear the warning from Scripture. Listen to what the Lord says to you this morning. Again from the Old Testament, Isaiah. Turn to me and be saved, says the Lord to you today. All the ends of the earth, for I am God. And there is no other. Turn to the Lord and be saved. There is no other God like Him. He is God, the only God. Be saved. Let's pray. Lord, our Heavenly Father, thank You that in the middle of judgment, we find mercy. 
Thank you that even though you're describing the judgment of this city, there is this cry that goes out to your people and it's a cry of warning, but it's also a cry that says, come to me, bring your hearts back to me. Don't be caught up in this world because you will so easily be caught up without you even knowing. This world will wrap its tentacles around you. Your attitudes, your hearts will become like it. Come out from her, my people. Come back to your Lord and live lives which glorify Him where He's put you in this earth as salt and light for Jesus Christ. Live lives before a holy God which glorify Him. Do the things which will glorify Jesus Christ. And as you do, you will become the aroma of Christ to those who are being saved and to those who are unsaved. Help us in this, Lord. We can't do this without your Spirit's help. Help us as we go out into this week to be saints who serve Jesus Christ. Saints who've had the the shackles and the chains of Babylon cut off us because of the love shown to us through our Saviour. Amen.